0: Good evening, Edgewater. How was dinner? Right? Absolutely. Have you ever had to do something that you did not want to do? Right? So, life. Thank you. That was awesome. I don't want to adult today. No, um... So my job, I I work on people's wells and pumps and and I like that, I I enjoy that. Even the like janky pump houses that I have to go into and people are always like, oh, there's probably a Black Widow in there. I'm like, no, there there is a Black Widow in there. That's, That's a guarantee. I don't mind that. But what I don't like doing is working on sump pumps. So sump pumps are pumps that are underneath people's houses to get rid of excess water if there's water underneath the house. And I don't mind like putting in new ones It's when old ones have failed. Because that means that there's water under the house. And if you think you might have a sump pump, but you don't know where it is, I can tell you. You find the crawl space or access to underneath your house and then just find the furthest point from there. It's a construction law. So years ago, I show up on this job, And it's one of those crawl space accesses where you lift up the hatch in the person's closet. And we're going back there and he's like, yeah, it's a pretty deep crawl space, but there's a lot of water. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I open it up. It's like a three and a half foot crawl space with about two and a half feet of water in it. And he's like, yeah, the sump pump's in the back corner. I know, I know, I know it's in the back corner. Thank you. (laughs) And he's like, I don't know if you, and I'm like, no, I'm just going in, right? So I just jump in there, go up to like here. And I get over, and I realize that the distance between the water and the the beams is such that I can't quite, so I got to kind of, right, and then duck up to the next one. So I get like five or six of them in, okay? And I pop up in one, and it's all kind of eerie in my flashlight, and I see all these floating corn cobs that have been chewed by rats, Okay, when I first read chapter 19, I thought, I think I'd rather go back under that house than teach this chapter. (laughs) It is one of the darkest, most disgusting chapters in the Bible because the Bible's brutally honest about sin, about mistakes, about humans, about sexuality, it's just really, really honest. But as I started reading through this and studying this chapter over the last couple of weeks, I think it has so much to tell us. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think way too often, uh, teachers and people who are speaking on this have focused on the secondary story and have missed the primary story. Because to me, the primary story is Lot. It's not Sodom and Gomorrah, it's Lot. We've been following these two characters for the last 15 chapters, five chapters or so as we go through Genesis. You've got Abram and you've got Lot, and they both make mistakes, but Lot is unrepentant. Lot doesn't change, Lot doesn't fix them. And if I was gonna sum up Lot's life in a single phrase, it would be this. Saved soul, wasted life. That's Lot. That's chapter 19. We see the end of a person who has a saved soul, but because of their hardness of heart, their refusal to change, they have a wasted life. And I think many Christians fall into that category today. And when I get lazy in my walk with the Lord, I start to fall into that category too. So let's pray, because we're gonna need it, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the honesty of scripture. That can be a mirror, that can be a challenge, that can be a warning to us, as this chapter is, Lord. It's a warning that we can live a life that we're saved, but it's, it's wasted. Lord, we can live a life like Abram that has a legacy that changes and touches every person around us. Lord, I pray that we would learn from Lot this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump in. Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now we're picking up in the middle of a story. If you were here last week, these angels, two angels and a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ came to Abram and they told him what they were going to do. They said, we're going to go down and we're going to see the city Sodom. This great outcry has come up about it. It's evil. We're going to go and see it for ourselves. And if it's evil, we're going to destroy it. And Abram and God and the angels, they have this interchange where Abram says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people? Will you destroy it then? No, we won't destroy it for 50 and then 40 and then 30 and 20. And, and so Abram gets them all the way down to 10 and then we pick it up and the two angels come to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early, and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him, and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The angel show up in Sodom. Lot is sitting there at the gate. That would be a place of prominence or position. This is like saying that Lot is on the, he's a county commissioner. He's possibly the mayor. He's on the city council. He's an important dude in Sodom. And you've got to look at Lot and be like, Lot, how did you get there? Why are you so involved in Sodom? And it's because when you go all the way back to chapter 13, you see that Lot's first big mistake is he has worldly priorities. That's what Lot has. Back in chapter 13, there's this, there's this issue where Abram and Lot, they have too many men. They've got too much people together. And, and so Abram is saying, Lot, you choose the place that you want to go and then I'll go the other direction. And it says that Lot looked out and saw Sodom. And then it was lush and it was beautiful, and it was prosperous, and he moved his tent there, and the city was exceedingly wicked. But Lot didn't factor that in to his decision. He just said, that place looks awesome. That Sodom is the place that your career advisor would tell you to go. Sodom's the place that your financial planner would tell you to go or invest in or do. Sodom's the place your online prosperity coach would tell you to go pitch your tent. It's where the prosperity is, but it's not where God's people are. And that's Lot's first mistake. He doesn't factor those things in. I think all too often when we're making decisions, and a lot of this, I look at Lot's life and I think about it as a dad. Because the end of this chapter, you see a very, very broken family because of Lot's decisions. And so I look at Lot as a dad and I think, am I making decisions for my family based on the greenest pastures or the godliest pathway? Because oftentimes the godliest pathway is not the greenest pastures. I was talking to someone the other day and he's like, I'm like, oh, he's like, we're moving. I'm like, well, where are you moving to? He's like, oh, I got a really good opportunity. And I'm like, great. And he's like, for my family, I think I'm gonna make a lot more money. I'm like, where is it? He's like, Vegas. Okay. I'm not saying you're not called to Vegas. There was another really evil city in the Bible. It was called Nineveh. And there was a guy who was sent there, wasn't he? He was Jonah. I mean, people can be sent to Nineveh. You might be sent to Vegas, but there's a big difference between being sent and seeing it and just looking at the green pastures. Dear, are you, are we, husbands, wives, families, are we praying through these big decisions about where we dwell and where we work and who we spend time with and what we invest in? Are we praying through them to say, what's the godly path? even if it doesn't make sense with the worldly choices. I mean, what if you go back to chapter 13 and Lot says, you know what, Abram, you're my godly uncle. You've saved me. You've walked with me. You know what? What if I downsize? How about I downsize? We don't have to separate. We can continue to dwell together. What changes in Lot's life? So we see in 13, Lot moves his tent close to Sodom, But then we see the next thing that happens in a wasted life. And that's this, it's called the compromise slide because it says that Lot moved his tent in the area of Sodom. And then he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then he pitched his tent next to Sodom. And then in the next chapter, we see Lot dwelling in Sodom. That's what compromise always does. Compromise begats compromise. Obedience begats. Begats obedience. And we think so often that it's gonna be the other way. I'll make a compromise here, and then I'll be I'm gonna go over there. I know it's a compromise, but when I get there, I'm gonna be super obedient, I'll be a light, I'll be a change, I'll be compromising again. Lot is the perfect example, it's the compromise slide. And then Lot ignores the warning signs. Because I look at this chapter and I'm like, man, God's gonna come in and destroy Sodom and you've got this whole thing with Lot. Man, God really should have warned Lot. He did. It was chapter 14. When Lot first moves to Sodom, what happens? These kings come in and they capture him and they haul him away. And Abram has to come back and fight this battle and save Lot. And do you remember what happens as they're returning? They're returning and the two kings come out to meet Abram. It's the king of Sodom. And it's the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And one of them's godly and one of them's not. And they come up to Abram and the king of Sodom offers, and Abram basically says, listen, you king of Sodom, I don't want anything from you. Take all your stuff back. I want nothing to do with you. King of Salem, I'm going to break bread with you. I'm going to give a tithe to you. You are the priest of the high king. Lot saw that exchange. And maybe Lot was done living in tents. He's like, you know what? I'm more of a city dude. Don't really like the camping life, right? Give me a condo with some fake grass. Fine. But you just found a city that has a priest of the high king. Choose that one, Lot. Why did you go back to Sodom? How many times have we ignored warning signs in our life? Are you paying attention to your mistakes. Am I learning from my mistakes? Got myself, not, this is not a personal story. It's an example. You know, you get into deep gambling debt because you have an issue. You've got a family member. They come in, they bail you out. Okay, do you learn or are you back at the casino the next week? You got a DUI. Okay. You didn't get in a wreck. You didn't, did you learn? you back at the bar the next week. Did you change? Over and over again, what I see about the godly men of the Bible, the godly women of the Bible, it's not that they don't make mistakes, it's that they learn and they change. It's so hugely important. Have you taken time in the last month, two months, three months to do a real evaluation of yourself and your life and your walk with the Lord and say, okay, are there some warning signs I've, I've lost? Is there a little bit of compromise slide that I've let get in here? What do I need to change before I end up at the end of Genesis 19? There's that verse in Psalm 139, right? You know the verse, search my heart, O God, see if there be any wicked thing in me. I've gotta be honest, I've always found that verse a little bit ridiculous because I'm like, I. it seems like a person saying, I don't really think I do anything wicked, but God finds something in me. I'm like, I don't need God to search my heart. I need five minutes of honest reflection in the mirror and I can find them. I can find them. But I love how that verse ends, but he says, lead me in the way everlasting. I don't need God to search my heart. Sometimes I just need to be honest with myself and say, okay, Lord, this is an area of compromise. This is an area where I've missed the warning signs. This is an area where I'm starting to slide. My priorities aren't quite right. Lead me in the way everlasting, wherever that may be. But Lot doesn't do any of that. You know why I don't think Lot doesn't do any of that? Because Lot looks around and thinks, you know what, I'm actually a pretty good dude. I'm a pretty good dude. I mean, these guys come into the city. No one else offers to take them into their house, do they? And then what do the guys say? They're like, no, you know what? We'll just sleep in the town square. And Lot's like, dude, I know this city. You can't do that. It'd be like if you had some out-of-town guests come in or people that, you you know, you run into someone on the street, you knew them from years ago, and you're like, what are you doing? They're like, oh, we just showed up in town. They're like, dude, come over to my house for dinner. we got an extra bedroom. You can crash. Nah, we thought we'd pitch a tent in Riverside Park. No, you really don't want to do that. You really, really don't want to do that. That's what Lot's saying here. And so he begs them and he brings them to his house. But then I think this is absolutely key in understanding the difference between Lot and Abram. Lot bakes them unleavened bread. Says he makes them a feast. And we get caught up on that word feast. It really means a meal. Lot made him unleavened bread. That's the bare minimum. Do you remember these same people met with Abram in the previous chapter? What did Abram make for them? Fresh bread, fatted calf, milk, clotted cream. What's the difference between Abram and Lot? Abram gives it it all. He gives God, his family, his ministry. He gives it everything he has. Lot, bare minimum. All right, I'll go to church, you know, if if everyone else is dragging me. I'll I'll read my Bible if someone's watching. I'll pray 30 seconds before I go to bed every night because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll give when I feel guilty the minimum. Lot does the minimum. And I think that's absolutely key to the direction that his life heads. What do we give God? What do I give God? Do I give him my best? Do I give him my mornings, my early time? Do I give him the times when I have the most energy where I'm like, I'll I'll do a little bit of studying at the end of the day when I'm, and then I just, what do I give God? What do I give my family? What do I give Netflix? What do I give my scrolling addiction? Who gets my best? Is it my king or is it Sodom? I just do the bare minimum. So challenging. Okay, so we picked this up. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the men to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. This is the word used in Genesis chapter three when it says, and Adam knew his wife. Okay, we're not checking their passports. That we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down But the men, those would be the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. It's late at night. All the men in the city come. They pound on Lot's door. Send your guests out so that we can rape them. brutal. And so what does Lot do? Lot goes outside and he's like, no, 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 no. Don't do this wicked thing. Rape my daughters instead. Did anybody else's gut just go, "Ugh," when they read that? I don't know of a more gut-wrenching section of scripture as a dad. Lot, what are you doing? Because here's the thing, Lot is running damage control. His poor decisions have got him and his family into a really bad situation. And so instead of choosing to do what is right, what would be right? You're not coming in here. You've got to go through me. That's right. He goes, no, no, you guys, you can have my daughters. Don't take these men. He's running damage control. Now, part of this in Lot's head makes sense because in that culture, if you accepted someone into your house, they were the most important thing. You were supposed to sacrifice everything else to protect them. That was your duty. So Lot decides instead of to sacrifice himself, he sacrifices his daughters. And thankfully, the angels saved them. Lot's running damage control. He's looking at the situation. He's saying, okay, this is bad. This is really, really bad. I don't want to betray my own pride and my own um, worth by putting these men out there to have this happen to them, but I don't want to offend the men of Sodom. So here's the solution. I'll give them my daughters. Who's Lot thinking about? Lot. Lot. Lot thinks a lot about Lot. That's Lot's problem. Listen, poor decisions, and sometimes poor decisions other people make, are going to put us in really, really hard situations sometimes. And you know who you sacrifice in a hard situation? You. Husbands, fathers, It's us. We die for our family. We lay down our pride. We admit to being wrong, even if it's only a tiny bit wrong. It's us, it's me. I'll fall on my sword. It's my responsibility. I'm not throwing anybody else under the bus. When things get hard, Lot does what's convenient, not what's right. And his family is gonna remember that at the end of the story. No, we'll just do what's convenient. That's what we'll do, right? Lot's of next, next mistake. But we probably have to address something else before we move on from this chapter. And this is, um, yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to go change a sump pump with me after this, we'll be fine. That'll be, we'll go do that. It'll be more fun. Because this is the portion of this chapter that everyone seems to focus in on and this is where the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah takes a twist that I think is not necessarily correct or helpful. Do you guys remember, um, most of you guys are old enough to remember back uh, when AIDS was a huge thing and there was the parades and there was AIDS and, and you'd have all those people with the Sodom and Gomorrah, like you're an abomination, Sodom and Gomorrah. Basically, they're taking chapter 19 and they're saying Sodom and Gomorrah is proof that God hates homosexuals. That was the proof text, and they would use it as a weapon. And so the question is, is that what this story is about? Is the story of chapter 19 of Genesis, God hates homosexuals and he'll destroy them? Is that what it's about? Well, look what it actually says in Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 says this, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. It's comparing Jerusalem and Sodom right now. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. The reason that God destroys Sodom is because the powerful were oppressing the powerless. That's why God destroyed Sodom. If you look at the previous chapter, it says that the angels come down because there's a giant outcry against Sodom. If there's just a bunch of men in a city doing sexual acts with each other, there's no outcry. There's an outcry because of rape and all the other evil things that were going on. It says that they were proud. They had excess of food the powerful in Sodom oppressed the powerless around them. We already have, we all have enough to eat, but we're exerting our power over those less powerful than us to take their food. Therefore, we'll have excess and they'll have lack. We have prosperous ease because we take advantage of whoever we can push down in order to prop ourselves up. It says that they were haughty. They thought themselves better than others to the point where other people were not to be loved or cared for but were to be used and abused to provide whatever the powerful want. The ultimate manifestation of that is rape. I will use you to exact whatever pleasure I want, no matter how much it hurts you. It's the powerful oppressing the powerless. That's the sin of the people of Sodom. So it leads to the next question then is, but is homosexuality a sin? And you've kind of got to address it when you go through Genesis 19. The Bible won't let you steer away from things like this. I told Matt I'm probably going to get our YouTube channel shut down. He said, go for it. <laughs> so turn quickly with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I want to read you something. It's very important. And it's important that we balance this. So give me a minute or 30. Um, 1 Corinthians 6:9 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Is homosexuality a sin? Yeah. People will try to take this and they will try to twist it to say that that verse there that says men who practice homosexuality does not mean a monogamous homosexual relationship. It means a promiscuous. We actually spent some time with this as elders. We studied through this. And you really cannot make an honest case for that's what it says. It's A sin. All sex outside of the covenantal relationship of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Do you know what else? All sin outside of the outright rejection of God can be forgiven, covered, and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because look at the next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Is it a sin? Yeah. Is it the unforgivable sin? No, it's on a list. The other two times that this is mentioned in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and Romans, it's also in a list of other sins. Romans 1 adds gossip, slanders, and disobedient to parents. All sin makes us unrighteous. So if that's the case, then why does it seem like the church has made such a big deal out of homosexuality? I'll give you three reasons. The first is because of that word that we use in Ezekiel, abomination. They say that makes it an extra thing in God's eyes. It's an abomination. But that word, if you actually read that chapter, is used about 10 or 12 times. It's used to reference idolatry. It's used to reference all sorts of sin. Abomination simply means to defile. All sin defiles. So when we see that word, God's not separating this sin out and saying, this one especially offends me. He said it's sin. All sin offends me. The second reason I think this has become a battleground is because it's one of the few sins that the people who are actively participating argue is not a sin. There's not a lot of people who are murderers who are like, let's throw a parade for all the murderers, right? There's not a lot of gossips who are actually, gossips are pretty into themselves. Um, Not a lot of thieves who are like, let's have a thieves parade, right? So this is one where the battle lines have kind of been drawn. They're saying, no, this is not a sin. And you simply have to come back and say, listen, it is, but it's, Also, I'm a sinner too. I don't obey my parents. I gossip. Listen, it's not unforgivable, but it is wrong. And the final reason I think the church has made such a big deal out of it is because the Bible actually does make a bigger deal out of some sins than others. It's not that sins aren't equally damning. All sin makes us unrighteous. It's that some sins are much more damaging right? Because in the same chapter in Corinthians, look at what it says here at the end. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Lying is a sin and it needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Homosexuality is a sin and it needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by that, I mean acts, not temptation. We've demonized this thing to the point where people who have same-sex attraction feel like they can't be in the church. You can walk that thing out. These are acts is what the Bible is talking about, right? Lies, adultery is a sin that needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But between lies and adultery, only one of those is gonna set off a nuclear bomb in your family. That's why God warns about it so much more harshly And I think the thing is that when it comes to that idea of these alternative lifestyles and where our culture is going, the Bible sets up huge warning signs because it's hugely dangerous. Because the further you get away from design, the more chance you have for disaster, right? So let's say I went on to like a classiccartrader.com and I bought a mint condition Ford Pinto. I saw one for $17,000, Mint condition. I actually also saw one that was completely like decked out. They'd put an engine in it. They'd gone crazy with it. And it was 80 grand. If you have 80 grand to buy a Ford Pinto, the elders would like to talk to you after church. Um, We'd need a bigger kid's wing, okay? So if I buy this mint condition Ford Pinto and I drive it around Grants Pass, it's probably gonna be okay. If I decide I'm gonna take it on a rally car race, I'm a little further away from the poor Pinto's design, right? I'm much closer to disaster. What if I decide I'm going to recreate a scene from Dukes of Hazard and I'm going to launch this thing? It's going to explode. Because the further you get away from design, the larger the chance of disaster. That's why the Bible warns so strongly about sexual sins. And I believe that if the Bible was written today, It would also warn very, very strongly about drugs in that same vein of defiling the body and setting off a nuclear bomb in lives, in families, in relationships. Okay? So um, I'm going to go jump out of our house now. We'll move on. Now, let's get back to Lot. Back to Genesis 19. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. This is the first result of the poor choices we see that Lot's made. He's got these worldly priorities. He's been compromising and compromising and compromising, ignoring warning signs, only doing the minimum, and then he comes and he tries to witness to people, and he has no voice in their life. They lot, you're ridiculous why would we listen to you? Why would we even bother? Your witness is ruined. Did Lot participate in the evil of Sodom? No. We'll find out later he didn't. It's not enough to not participate in evil. You have to not tolerate it. If you want to witness, you have to be a person who pushes evil back, not sits back and tolerates. Lot has No witness. Verse 15, and as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who were here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, behold, I grant you this. Oh, he said to them, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's Lot's day of salvation. And what does he do? He dawdles. Anybody have kids? You know what Lot's doing. Hey guys, let's go. I I, I was thinking maybe I get my other pair of shoes and I can't find my water bottle and I'm going to change my pants and get out the door. We're late for church. I don't want to yell at you on our way to church. That's what the angels have to be like. Lot, let's go, dude. And then they say, get out of Sodom. Go to the hills. And what does Lot say? I don't really want to go to the hills. It's so far up there. (sighs) I'm old. What about that city over there? It's just a little city. It seems that the angels were going to destroy that city too, which means it was also wicked. Just not quite as wicked. Can I just go, it's just not quite as bad. Lot has delayed obedience and partial obedience. When God calls us, do we act immediately? Do we obey completely? Or like Lot, do we drag our feet? Oh, okay, in a little bit, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. That far, Lord? That early in the morning? That much money? But that's a little Can I go there? Let me just go there. I'll be happy there. Happiness comes from obedience. Happiness comes from obedience. You'll find out soon Lot wasn't happy in that city. He had to leave. Parents, grandparents, leaders, I think one of the best witnesses we have is when the God calls us or corrects us or directs us that we act immediately and completely. Because that's what I want my kids to do. That's what I want you to do. That's what Lot should have done. Verse 23, then the sun had, when the sun had risen on the earth, Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow where he had overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now, now you didn't think the story could get worse, did you? Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all men. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Lot's story ends in a cave with an incredibly broken family. Because here's the result of all Lot's poor decisions. It's something that I call trickle-down morality. It's trickle-down morality. It's this. Those who are, you are responsible for, your kids, your employees, those people around you who you lead, just make the assumption they're going to struggle twice as much as you do with anything you're struggling with. Make that your litmus test. Okay, would I be okay if my kids struggled twice as much as I do with this? Then I need to work on that. Lot lingers, his wife looks back. Lot tolerates sexual sin. His daughters indulge in sexual sin. Lot chooses to do what's expedient. His daughters choose to do what is expedient. But this time there's not angels around to prevent this terrible thing from happening. This has been probably the most challenging to me as I've read through this chapter and I've looked at it and I thought, okay, okay, if my kids have twice the moral failings that I have, where are they gonna be at? Because that's trickle-down morality. And you see it over and over and over again. And it's incredibly challenging and sobering. And then finally, Lot has a ruined legacy. The Moabites, the Moabites are known from this point forward as being a culture of sexually deviant people And the Ammonites, the Ammonites are the ones who invent that idol that they sacrifice their children to. Terrible, terrible legacy. And I'm thinking about Lot, and I'm just wondering like, okay, you lost everything. You made all these poor decisions. You end up in this cave with your daughters. Why don't you go to Abraham? Why don't you go back to your uncle? Lot's final mistake is this. He's too proud to get help. He's too proud to admit his mistakes and go ask for help. And what? How many families have been destroyed by men's pride and the refusal that men especially have to ask for help when they've screwed up? Because it's hard to do. These are my moral failings. This has put us in a really bad place, but I'm not gonna hide in this cave and watch my family go down the toilet. I'm going to get help. If that's you out here tonight, get help. There's no unforgivable sin. There's no unredeemable thing. God wants to redeem this. God wants to change this. God wants to fix this in your family, even if it's your mistakes, and he can we have to ask for help. And Lot was too proud to do that. And it sets them in this terrible direction. It's a story of Lot. It is a saved soul and a wasted life. And you might say before we go, like, like just to clarify, James, you mean saved like saved from Sodom, not like saved like going to heaven, right? I mean, like Lot can't be going to heaven, right? Let's well, see what it says in 2 Peter 2. It says this, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if, and this is a true statement, he rescued righteous Lot. That might be the most surprising thing I read all night. God rescued righteous who? Lot. Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man, who? Lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Righteous? Who? There are only two ways to be righteous. You can be absolutely free from sin, no bad thoughts, no bad actions, no bad deeds. And only one person has ever accomplished that, King Jesus Christ. Or you can be given righteousness through faith. You can be given righteousness. Lot believed. He followed the angels. He was given righteousness. Lot is the perfect Old Testament example of someone where you go, I don't really think that person should be in heaven. And God says, I gave them righteousness. I gave them righteousness. And that's encouraging to me for people that I've seen walk away and family members and you go, listen, God is incredibly, incredibly gracious. There's this really cool phrase in the middle here. It says, what was, how was Lot saved? It says, the men seized him the Lord being merciful. Lot was seized by the mercy of God. It only takes faith. But the question is this, whose life would you rather live? Lot's or Abram's, right? Lot's life ends alone in a cave with a terrible family legacy. Look what chapter 25 says about Abraham. Verse eight says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old age full of years and was gathered to his people. That's the legacy I wanna leave. Over and over again in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this hall of faith. And it says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abraham did this. Lot's not all in the hall of faith. It doesn't say by faith, Lot squeaked into heaven. (laughs) Lot made no impact. No change other than negative for his family. Abram, man, all the world was blessed. Chapter 26 gives us the key. It says, because Abraham obeyed my voice, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The thing be- that's different between Lot and Abram, the thing I think that really struck me about this chapter 19 is this. Obedience is the pathway to a meaningful, flourishing, legacy, leaving life. It's obedience. It's not compromise. It's not worldly priorities. Th- we'll make mistakes. Change, obey, leave a legacy like Abram. Don't be a lot, amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for this hard, challenging, illuminating scripture. Lord, I thank you that you have the kind of grace that saves Lot that's so encouraging to me. But Lord, I wanna be Abram. I want us to be a church full of Abrahams who obeyed and leave a legacy of faith behind us. Help us to walk in that righteous path through the strength of your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.